it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is and see what we can learn from them. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard and today I'm speaking with another editor, Justin Kendall and reporter Zoe Licata from US brewing industry news site Brewbound. Brewbound is the leading industry trade publication providing comprehensive information about the United States beer industry, analysis of industry trends and in-depth interviews with industry leaders. Justin and Zoe are both extremely plugged into what's going on in the US and two people whose coverage I always look to when news breaks in that market. With the US being so influential on emerging trends here in Australia, I thought it was a good opportunity to speak to them about what they are seeing in the US beer market, particularly following the sobering news that came out of the Craft Brewers Conference back in May. We start by talking about what they have labelled as craft beer's toxic positivity problem. We look at current trends and challenges facing the beer market and how their industry and industry associations are responding. And we also look at the future of, of all things, the beer slushy. Justin and Zoe's analysis is always informed and insightful, and I hope you learn as much from it as I did. Justin Kendall, Zoe Licata, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks for having us. I know, this is exciting. Oh, it, it's incredibly exciting for me. I, I get to catch up with Justin once a year. And I, I wave to you, Zoe, across the room at uh, your excellent brew talk, talks when, when I'm there. But uh, we, we never, this is the first time we've actually got to sit down and have a chat. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, I'm coffee in hand, given the time difference. I know. It's, we're like at the end of our workday here. But I know, it's quite, quite a different experience to talk across the world. <laughs> The miracle of modern technology. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, uh, there's a lot that I want to talk about, but something that I hadn't actually put on the show notes, um, but came out this week. And uh, as an avid reader of your uh, Brewbound newsletter, um, this week uh, you published a contributed piece from Kelly Meyer, who has his own podcast, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And there was something that he mentioned that leapt out and Zoe, it is the perfect three words to describe something that I've spent hours and hours and hours of podcasting trying to summarize. And he refers to you using the phrase toxic positivity syndrome and being a problem with craft beer. Maybe we can start by you telling me, you know, what that is. Yeah, what what led you to come up with that phrase? Yeah, I think our colleague Jess Infante probably coined it for us first because she tends to have a, a nice little vocabulary for what's going on in beer. Um, but it really is this idea, and I think it stems from craft beer starting with a lot of people getting into it as this passion project, is people aren't necessarily thinking about it in the strictest business sense but more and like, this is a great thing. We love craft beer. We love it growing. We love how many breweries are out there now and all this excitement about it and not taking a more realistic or sometimes pessimistic look at how it's actually doing as an industry, how businesses are actually doing. Are they 
thriving or are they just surviving or what does that actually look like or are they staying open in spite of not thriving right which huge part of it and, and, and because that, that's one of the we love the industry it is a passionate industry it's a great industry beer is wonderful all of those things but particularly in journalism trying to cover a more rounded um view um of, of the industry covering things that are just facts um without attacking them sometimes i feel people don't like the non-pleasant facts they, they want to celebrate the positive but also to even just report on the facts that everybody knows is a subject for criticism no one criticizes people for being unfairly positive um in a way that attracts more people you know and i my fear is that people are going to lose their houses, um, you know, if, if they're not provided the information. Is, is that part of, of, of where that idea came from? I think so. I think part of that, too, is craft beer has always been having to advocate for itself as just like mm. the part of the beer industry and trying to update everything legislation wise and bring it to, to more even playing field. So you have to kind of focus on those positive things and really emphasize them. Um, and no one's gonna really wants to correct you for that because that just makes you a Debbie Downer. <laughs> like that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't seem to jive with the the overall culture of craft beer and celebrating beer. What's more exciting to to say to call it an American success story, right. or to say how many of you are profitable? Right. Which again, Justin, uh, you know, that's one of the challenges, you know, this year at Craft Brewers Conference, we saw Bart Watson stand up and it was probably his most confronting talk and he couldn't not say it. It was the circus of elephants in the room rather than the one elephant in the room. But how much does the Brewers Association have to take ownership for years celebrating brewery openings and not... You know, do, do they put a focus on how many breweries are actually profitable and successful or is it just you know, growing in a growing market? It's a question that I posed to Bart after his speech was, when you're doing your surveys, do you ever ask, are you profitable? And I think he said that there's some question in there that sort of gets around it, but I don't know that I've ever seen anything come out publicly on that. And I do think that it's something that he, I'm pretty sure he told me that it's something that they're going to ask more about in the future, which I really hope they do. <laughs> <laughs> this is where it's great to chat. And so you're often referred to as the the, the, the youth reporter on, yeah. on your own podcast, which I, I, we've made this, we've talked to the same about our younger reporters because it's our embarrassment about being old. But there is an importance in the industry that we get perspectives of the changing in the industry from people that are entering it. But then also, I'm also mindful that, you know, at, at 53, I've, I've seen, you know, the, the GFC, you know, the, the property boom of 2008. I saw the ostrich farming boom of, you know, the, the late 90s. I saw, you know, every get rich, you know, in industry. And as much as I love beer, and it is the industry that I've chosen to cover, there has always been, just from having a history of experience of industries that have been hyped and failed, I've always sat there asking, gee, is craft beer going to be one of the, is craft beer going to be the next Bitcoin or ostrich farming um, where people have just got into it with unbridled 
positivity about it. And and I don't know what the answer. Although we are starting to see as breweries close and you know stories like um, Kelly's talking about you know a, a distiller that's been open for ten years and every year he's hoped that this is the year that he makes a profit, but he's just doing something that he loves, and that's been the success story of of the industry. Yeah, I think. Bart has said something, has said this a couple times over the past year of the fact that craft beer is getting to a place that most other industries are in normally. Like this kind of success that craft beer has had for so long is not normal. (laughs) And so I don't, I don't know if I necessarily see there being such a big of a crash as like a Bitcoin or something, but it's definitely... It, it just the odds are more likely that it's going to get to a more a smaller playing field that the amount of players in there is going to reduce and that it's going to get to a place like restaurants like other like companies where not everyone is going to have a success story most people aren't but again that's a shift in their storytelling they're an adversary group for themselves aren't they justin you know in in, in a lot of ways right it, I mean, we talk about the Craft Brewers Conference, and that's that's their rah-rah moment for the year. That's when everybody comes together, and you expect a little bit of that, of course. And they've pushed the idea of, you know, 10,000 breweries as a positive thing. I'm not here to say that it is or it isn't, but yep. you know, you see the market the way it is, and it's... more challenging than it was and you're coming out of a pandemic and everybody's trying to just survive at that point and now you've got a bunch of money that the government was given out has dried up and we're seeing an increase in closures and that's something that this industry hasn't seen before it's been a lot of good times and now now it's tough Mm. I, i guess it's relevant from our point of view because in Australia, for a long time, you know, 15 years ago, Australian brewers were saying Australia's five, 10 years behind the US. Um, and that has gradually caught up because of social media. We can see trends that are relevant six months, you know, that that northern summer, um, by the time the southern summer rolls around, we see brewed IPAs or cold IPAs or whatever rolling through. So we do have that, but there is still that little bit of a lag. And I've always thought that... Um, that gave us some cover because we could see the trends in the in the US and it gave us time to adapt here. Um, and I, I call it the Peloton effect. And I th- think of the um, uh, Tour de France when you see the lead rider, you know, swerve to avoid a pothole and then suddenly you see the 30 riders behind them all swerving and you've got that ability to, to, to see um, the, the lead rider. Um, when it comes to brewery numbers, there is something about the American industry that whenever I say to people who are planning a brewery, you know, how do you know that we don't have enough brewers in Australia now? Um, instead of saying, well, look at the US, you know, and, and they look at the US and go, the US has got 10,000, you know, that's X number. They don't look at any differences or anything like that. So they're, they're still riding straight into the same pothole in some, in, in some ways that they could have avoided just by watching the slowing in the US industry. Um, and then that's why I think it's a very relevant topic for us um, down here. And I, I dig a little bit deeper into what's going on in the US. Do you think craft beer 
you know, it had its moment in the sun. It was the, it was the new thing, um, and it was a extended period of popularity. But we are seeing in in, in the states, we saw seltzer come, maybe go. I don't know. Um, you can comment on that. But uh, you know, RTDs, the premix spirits market, is 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 having a moment. Are all of those things? drawing attention away from craft beer and craft beer has had its moment and now has to try and find a new relevance that's quite that's like quite the question that's the question (laughs) everyone's asking right now i'd say yes to a degree the thing i keep coming back to is drinkers who are zoe's age or younger are coming into the category at a different place than somebody who's old like me did you don't have to acquire a taste to drink some of these, you know, canned cocktails or hard seltzers or, or whatever they are, the palate's different. So you're, you got to speak to a different consumer than you did before. And then we know that craft already is at a disadvantage because it under indexes with women and uh, minority consumers. So it, it's behind the eight ball already with a lot of the drinkers who it needs to attract. Yeah, I think it's less of taking away existing craft consumers. I don't necessarily think it's distracting those that are already dabbling in craft, but it's definitely t- potentially taking away future consumers because we already have all of these other options out there. We're past the point where craft with this shiny new thing that we could go to and experience and now we can really get anything we could possibly imagine <laughs> as a uh, alcoholic beverage. And so it's it's harder to capture their attention. Um, and there's, of course, there are the existing consumers who maybe are experimenting with other things more and so they're not grabbing craft as often but I don't think it's as much of a distraction for them. Zoe, do you think there's a risk that, you know, craft beer has, <laughs> when you close your eyes and think of a beer festival, there is a type of consumer that, that I think most people would would picture. And it's, you know. The white guy in a beard and flannel. And, <laughs> yeah. I was going to let everyone check come up with the three. Them. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to let everyone come up with their own, but maybe you've uh, hit the nail on the head. Um, does that perception of craft beer and the pervasiveness of it count against it for a new generation of consumers? You know, the under 25s who are finishing college and have that unlimited choice. Do they identify as being a craft beer drink, quite apart from flavor, just as the brand perception that craft beer has? Um, you know, do they, is, is, is beer and craft beer relevant to, to those consumers that are coming through? If anything, it's probably had a, that image has probably had a negative impact on those younger consumers and probably more so diverse consumers of try of getting into the category. I mean, we've talked before, um, we're close with the guys who created Funky Town Brewery in Chicago, and they've talked about how they're just trying to bring the idea of craft culture to black people in Chicago because they felt so disconnected from that idea of what craft is. Um, so I don't, I don't really see a lot of people my age looking to identify with that. Um, mm. I think they, 
yeah, I don't think it's translated as much to the next generation it has previously where it was all about, yeah, I'm a craft person. I'm a craft guy. Like I am all about my craft beers. Let me show you all my beer shirts and um, all my my festival wristbands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's just it hasn't carried over. You're not impressed by 750 milliliter bottle collections? <laughs> no. Are you impressed by my book collection in the background? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, God, you should see my Kindle. Um, <laughs> uh, Justin, I mean, that's interesting because I, I, I was fascinated. It, just before COVID, in the before times, I was in Denver. Um, and the first time we actually met in person. And it was at your Brew Talks Live. It was just as the Seltzer Wave was building um, and you guys did an excellent panel that featured Garrett Moreira, who is now the chair of the Brewers Association board. And I, 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 amazingly, I found the notebook from that. And I, I, I want to go back and listen to his, his talk because the one thing I wrote in Triple Underlined was he opened by saying, I just got, I got into the business because I wanted to make cool shit. And, you know, to, to legitimize, because there was such brewing industry negativity about people that wanted to make other things, um, particularly seltzer. Um, but he, you know, enunciated a case of if this is where consumers are, we need to meet them. We need to sort of give them the products that we want. And I just wanted to make cool shit. You know, when craft beer was cool, I wanted to make that. And, and that's me paraphrasing. And I thought that's really interesting that he's now the chair, someone with that attitude is now the chair of the Brewers Association board where you had the Sam Calagiones and, you know, the, the the people that would defend beer and putting out all of those, you know, really um, flag-waving craft beer videos 10, 15 years ago about, you know, and, and were battling over the definition of craft, that you couldn't even use sugar and adjuncts. Um, you know, we wouldn't have a craft beer industry today if we didn't, if, if we still had the definition of craft beer that a previous board had. And I thought that in itself poses a really interesting challenge for the brewing industry when its very own association no longer sees beer as something, a, a category to defend of itself. And its own chair says, you know, beer is just one of the things that we make. And how do you enunciate a really clear brand proposition for beer when the people contributing to that just say, ah, yeah, just make cool shit? It gets harder. Um, <laughs> I, it, it gets really hard. The, the evangelists are fewer and fewer. Look at, you know, who, who was proselytizing craft beer. Greg Cook's not even in the industry anymore. Exactly. The best of my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Look at, uh, go, there's a brewer, I think it's a Brewers Association video called I Am a Craft Brewer. And mm. if you go back That's and look at it. That's what I was thinking it, of, yeah. There are so many people who are no longer in the industry or they sold their breweries or whatever. And this is not a judgment call on any of them because I don't care if you sell your business or not. I really don't. And a lot of people did, you know, in the middle 2010s, whatever it was, it gets back to, you know, what's your goal? Because this is a business. But yeah, I, that proposition gets harder and it gets even harder when the association opens up an event like the Great American Beer Festival to other items like hard seltzer and canned cocktails or I don't think they... 
I think spirits are off the table. Zoe will yeah. have to correct me, but yeah, I don't think spirits, but they can but do now. like mo- <laughs> right, right. But yeah, <laughs> the yeah, but this year cider. they can get like hard kombucha in there too. Like they're they got an array. Yeah. So and a few years ago, a lot of people were. We're wondering what was up when they allowed Jameson to have a whole sponsored area. And now, you know, we're in this situation where the Brewers Association, the Beer Institute, the National Beer Wholesalers Association are all pushing back against spirits companies that are trying to expand their market access to get lower excise taxes, in some cases close to or equal to beer and and it's just funny how you you kind of let the fox in the hen house and now it's like oh you know but those were you know beer collaborations jameson was all over all over denver that during that great american beer festival they were throwing parties they had big time advertising and it is i mean i don't know that it's manifested for jameson the way but there are definitely spirits plays out there that are competing with beer. And now, you know, you have another event where it's at least their members who are are producing these items, but it's, you know, I am a beverage company. I'm not a craft brewer. Do you have many brewers that have distilleries these days? Because we have an increasing number um, of our larger ones have distilleries and the pushback against non-beer um, you know, intrusions and tax is a huge one. Is a lot less powerful um, when suddenly you've got this. Well, we make money from spirits as well. I mean, Dogfish Head makes spirits. Yeah, right. They have for <laughs> twenty plus years. Um, yep. You know, Boston beers in the spirits game. You know, Maui, Maui makes spirits. So Garrett's own company is is mm. making spirits. Um, I'm, I won't be surprised if Sierra Nevada is making spirits at its new innovation center or, you know, I don't know. Is New Belgium making spirits? Did I already forget? <laughs> Probably eventually. <laughs> I mean, just just about everybody. I mean, there was yeah. a period around 2020 where people were like, small crap brewers are like, no, I'm a beverage company. Mm. Oh, yeah. So it, it's it's a change that's been happening, but... I mean, look who is is winning the canned cocktail game right now. The top two are Anheuser-Busch is in the number two position with Cutwater and High Noon, which is a wine company's offering. Do you see any downstream risks for a straight beer category in a we're all beverage producers world? Particularly when you think of you know tax and legislation, because beer has generally been given favourable tax breaks, or you know seen as you know if you go back to the Brewers Association posters pre and post um, uh, prohibition, you know we are the beverage of moderation um, because you know, we're the healthy beverage. That is harder and harder to promote. Yeah, it's hard to defend that position when. You have spirits companies that are putting out similar ABV products. You ha- it gets way harder to defend that position too when you're putting out 19 two-point cans, single-serve cans of nine and a half, ten and a half, you, you know, high ABV offerings out there. It gets 
really hard to defend that p proposition when those are some of your growth drivers. Yeah, it's become quite a, a fight out there legislation wise of just, I mean, it's gotten pretty heated between the spirits advocacy groups and the beer advocacy groups. And it's, the beer has seemed so far to do a little bit better, but the fights are nowhere near over. And it seems that spirits are kind of getting some cracks in there. And if you're a state legislator, you don't know the difference. If somebody sets down a, a can of four and a half percent spirits based vodka soda or whatever it is, and a four and a half percent hard seltzer that's malt or sugar based or whatever, you know, right. what's that state lawmaker going to say? Like, are they really going to be like, well, how hard was it for you to produce these canned cocktails? They're not, they're not going to worry about that. And funnily enough, that that's the the, the greatest challenge. Yeah, the, the more that the lines blur, it's very hard to defend beer as a category when no one can taste the difference. And I, again, I, listeners to this will know my regular analogy that you burn fire breaks for a reason. You know, you you have a clear space between the land that you want to protect and the land that you don't care that it burns. Um, just to stop it, the, the contagion spreading. And that line there where legislators can't tell the difference between a beer or something that's taxed as a beer and something that is taxed as a spirit when they taste exactly the same, that's where they go, well, there is no meaningful difference. We shouldn't have a, we, we shouldn't protect um, this one uniquely. Yeah. I mean, just think of all the cocktail inspired beer products that have come out in the past two, three years. Everything inspired from margaritas and all that fun stuff. Like it's they're using cocktail and spirits associated terminology. And there's been some legal matters because of that. But it's it's gotten very, very gray. But that's a survival. I, I, clearly, you know, brewers oh, yeah. and, and we, we heard so many panels at this year's CBC were about brewers need to broaden. You know, you, you, you're not going to grow up. You, all of this growth that we told you the industry was going to have isn't there anymore. You've got to find other ways to, to grow and it's grow into other industries. So you almost had the Brewers Conference, um, which Justin is, it's interesting that you, I'd forgotten all about the Jamison, um, you know, stories at CBC, but that takes on extra relevance here again because our own independent brewers association which takes the u.s brewers association as a lead you know points to the fact that the great american beer festival and cbc are two of the main funding platforms for the brewers association's activities and if numbers are down as you've reported for um the great american beer festival that's a big chunk of income from the Brewers Association and as a business, quite apart from an advocacy body that's defending any idea of beer, they need to exist as a business first of all. It makes business sense to blur the lines and get more people and more relevance to their own festival, but does that in turn potentially make them less relevant as an advocacy body for the thing that they were set up to create? Yeah, it, it makes it a lot harder. And I think that there is the potential for a schism of who the Brewers Association really represents and whose interests. Are they representing the, the small, small brewers who are, you know, 
slugging it out over their own bars, trying to, you know, just make their tap rooms work or whatever it is, or, you know, self-distribute a small amount of beer? Or, you know, do they represent more on, on the, the larger side, you know, the two million barrel, you know, brewers or the hundred thousand barrel brewers or whoever it may be. I think that there's there's a real question of like, can they support the interests of everyone that they try to represent as a whole? Hmm. Zoe, you're nodding yeah. along there. You've got thoughts. I, I mean, I guess I, there's a reason why we report on the news and don't give advice because every, <laughs> yeah. after everything we've just said, it's also true that, yeah, they kind of have to do these things to survive. So I don't, it's kind of this double-edged sword. If you don't do these things, you might not make it. But if you do do them, you're also might challenge the future of just beer as its own thing. So I don't know how you figure out that balance. That's the great thing about podcasts. We can report the news in, <laughs> yeah. in the words and put it out there. But then we, I, I get it. And it, it, it's a huge challenge for us as well because we see things. And I find there's something very limit, uh, liberating about not owning a brewery is that you can stand back and you're not fighting for survival. As much as you love the industry, you report you're of the industry, but not in the industry. Mm-hmm that you can sit back and watch some of these things and have the questions. And that, and that's what our podcast, our, our news reporting is on the thing. Our podcast is discussing the thing, and uh, which is what we're doing here. I'm very happy I don't own any steel tanks. <laughs> yes, yes. So we just have bits flying across the ether. I, I, I guess one of the things that we've been dancing around uh, in, in a way is looking at some of the trends that are captured in data. Um Data has been in a, a huge focus in Australia because we, for, for, for whatever reason, we don't, either it's the size of the market, the, the way that our industry is, is divided, we don't have the same level of data that you guys seem to report on so well, you know, whether it's the Bump Williams Consulting, um, you've got the Sakana data out um, in, this week. What data do you guys study yourselves very closely to give a meaningful observation on where on what's happening in the industry i mean it's so difficult because it's like you're getting so many different pictures of the industry and not really a whole one Mm. all in one place so you know the scans you'll get some form of off-premise whether that's circana or uh and IQ. And IQ. Yeah. And yeah. They change their name so much that I <laughs> it takes me a minute. But so you have that. You you know, we, we report on CGA, we get some insights from Bump Williams Consulting, we get some insights from three tier beverages, you know, we listen to what the chief economists say, whether that's Bart Watson or Lester Jones or uh, Danelle Cosmo, who's leaving the Beer Institute. But, and, you know, you try and the best you can to, you know, just form some thoughts based on all of this together. But at the end, I mean, you're, you're still only getting some form, some picture. Yeah. It's an, I feel like, I mean, we are probably are using that scan data the majority of time in reference for a lot of our coverage, but always with that's that. That's the retail scan data. Yeah, yeah. So that's stuff from like Circana or NIQ about, you know, multi outlets and all that fun stuff. But it's always with the caveat of, you know, we realize the on-premise is a big 
portion of business for some people and is mm. in a that's a whole nother thing that is going on right now is just the health of the on-premise so it's there's nothing really that captures everything we had um chris shepherd from beer marketers insights on uh some weeks ago um and he described it as squishy data, um, just <laughs> <laughs> trying to work out, making making sense of it, which is a job in itself, which again is hopefully yeah. why publications like ours exist and are relevant. Yeah. I, I like that. I know. I like Chris to, too. We have to see yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, again, it's a, it's 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 a long haul getting over to CBC every year, but it's it's certainly worth the effort um, to to catch up with the good with you know, the, the good people that, that you get to see at their conference. I, I've got in my notes to talk about, and it, it, it's it's more part of general trends. I'd love to hear uh, what you guys see um, as, as being the trends that are you know in in, in the northern summer at the moment. Um, but one of them that has come up on the pod on your podcast is beer slushies. Now, <laughs> they have not landed here yet, um, certainly not in a meaningful way. Tell me what a beer slushie is. And Justin, you spoke rather positively about them, I have to say. <laughs> it was. I was surprised how positive you were about them, to be honest. So was I. Yeah. Disappointingly surprised. Well, <laughs> let's face it. Like, when you've been to, you know, I, I don't even know how many brewery tap rooms I've been to at this point, and at some point they get to be a, a little bit all the same, you know, but what I liked about this was that it has the ability to attract a younger consumer in a way, in a fun way that it mixes it up a little bit. And yeah, I, I was pretty positive about it, but when my brain is locked on, well, we're not attracting a diverse audience. We're not attracting women. And if you can offer them something that is like beer, but, you know, is fun like this, why not? I mean, now, it, when we say beer slushy, it is literally just a slushy machine yeah. that has beer put into it and the alcohol stops it from freezing completely. So yeah. you get frozen beer as, as you would. I see beer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's something I've noticed it for. A, a solid amount of time now at least like five plus years and it, it felt like originally it was mostly just with breweries that had a lot of sours were making slushy versions of their sours um and it was it was like a cool little fun thing you could post on instagram it wasn't something that had a lot of traction or was really going to bring your brewery a lot of sales but it is something where you're innovating in a space but also still focused on beer you're not having to go into that seltzer space or into a canned cocktail space it's just a, a slushy version of your beer again it hasn't landed here so you heard it here first folks potentially so get start investing in those slushy machines as we uh, edge towards our uh, southern spring um <laughs> justin I, I was immediately struck um when you were talking about going to tap rooms and they all look the same. That was one of the really interesting data points that we've focused on a little bit from CBC is one of the rays of sunshine that Bart pointed to was tap rooms have experienced some strong growth, but it's tap rooms that have opened in the last few years as opposed to older tap rooms. Do you think, was I reading that right, that it's tap rooms that possibly aren't that ubiquitous industrial shed, Ikea chairs, wooden bench tops, food truck parked out front, 
Um, it, it's there, there's been a modernization of the taproom experience that are, are the ones that are doing well. I I think some are. I think there's a really good example in Talea Beer Company in New York. It's a women-led brewery that has created an experience that is not industrial. Is that how you? It's how would you describe bright it? Yeah. and open yeah. and all their glass walls. It's like it's more like what you might experience at a winery. It's it's feels a little more welcoming to somebody, I would say. I think that's a great example of opening your mind to what your experience is or could be. be and, and when we talk about, you know, struggles and, you know, I think your tap room is your theater and it can be what you want it to be and it can be more than what it is if it's an industrial space. Yeah. Are you seeing any trends for tap rooms that have opened more recently or even tap rooms that have reinvented themselves um, and remodeled themselves um, successfully or at least doing something that's a little bit different from that you know, post-industrial landscape? It seems to be the ones, I don't know if we have a pulse on like specific trends within it, but it seems to be the ones that are really focused on having a specific identity, connecting your space to your brand are the ones that seem to do the best. And there are a lot of newer craft brands that are gaining traction pretty fast because they have that space where you're really, you're providing something that's unique, but also very connected to who you are as a company and what you're trying to do. One, one of the topics that you suggested that we talk about as, as, as a trend is the brewers or breweries partnering for survival, Justin. Um, do you want to talk us through that? I think that's something that we've seen a lot more of this year, whether it's, I mean, we've seen some very, I don't say, I, I would say mid-sized breweries that are really having a hard go of it. And you look at an example like Bear Republic, where they were reducing the hours of their tap rooms or even shutting some of them. And they've linked up with Drake's as I would call it maybe a life raft. I don't know if they would, but it seems to be, you know, a, a life preserver that was thrown to them. And I'm sure there are more that I'm not thinking of off off the top of my head. I mean, it fe feels like every week we were seeing like the Jess would call it like a sea otters holding hands and and <laughs> trying to figure it out. Some some of them didn't work. Like Flying Fish and Cape May in New Jersey were supposed to partner up. Cape May was going to acquire Flying Fish whatever reason it didn't work out so uh, we've seen it sort of crumble too oddly uh th that was the first time that i'd seen something like that in a, a long while but i even when you look at anchor that that's another story of mm. you know a legacy craft brewery a 124 year old craft brewery that's going under i think that that's just the trend. I mean, we've seen very, very small breweries link up. And I'm, like I said, names are, are escaping me at the moment. But yeah, with, with the partnering, what are the mechanics that you're seeing? Is there any one model that is going? Because is it breweries coming together and just sharing backroom and sales staff? Or are they actually just merging into one brew house to get the economies of that? 
and then trading under two separate brands and two separate tap rooms. What are the what are the mechanics of the models that you're seeing when they're partnering? In some some regard, the the uh, acquiree will outright disappear. In some some regard, they'll continue on. I think an example of that is Full Circle Brewing acquired Speakeasy in California. And we weren't sure, I, I still don't remember if they ended up keeping the tap room, but they were going to keep the brand going. So some of it is brand acquisition and, and just keeping it alive that way. Yeah, it seems to be a lot of, I mean, it feels like there were so many of them to start this year off, a lot of just sharing real estate and sharing um, kind of back of house resources like things like HR or sales teams, like things that a brewery really needs to be a legitimate business. But when you are struggling financially, they tend to fall to the wayside a little bit. <laughs> I'm only smiling uh, because I'm thinking there are so many breweries that don't even have, you know, the small breweries don't even have HR. So uh, yeah. even getting access to HR is probably a significant thing for some of them. Oh, yeah, Totally. I mean, I'm just looking through some of our reporting that we've had recently. I mean, like this past year, Riverhorse and Duclaude merge, or well, one was an acquisition, but these are all kind of really mergers a little bit. And we saw at the end of last year, Faubourg uh, merged with Made by the Water. There FX was, Matt acquiring uh, yep. Flying Dog. So they acquired the IP mm-hmm. for that, but... The real estate's going to be sold off or who knows what they're going to do with the real estate. Yeah. Ninkazi and Wings and Arrows, they merged. They were already, Wings and Arrow was already doing a lot of Ninkazi's production anyway. And so they just kind of, it was seemed kind of more like a technical business deal to make all of that a little more official, but. Other way around, Ninkazi doing Wings and Arrow. Excuse me. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. There's so many, but yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's a lot going on right now. I know it's very early days. Have we seen any signs that any of these are successful? Um, Too early to know on a lot of these. I think the reason that maybe we're a little slow on the uptick to remember these is everything seems to be happening so fast. And so what seemed like a, a, a major trend there with... Um, and, and it still is it of these acquisitions or mergers. Now we're seeing leadership transitions at a clip that I don't remember in the craft brewing space at at top level breweries. So I feel like we're at this major inflection point in craft where the leadership has changed. The evangelists who were there there are so many fewer of them it it, it's setting up to be i don't know what the industry is going to be in next year let alone three years let alone five years and the trajectory just feels so much different right add that also on top of some of the large breweries either getting rid of a lot of their craft brands or original owners buying back their craft brands. It's just so much happening all at once that it seems pretty big. And then you have 
the soda giants testing out <laughs> alcohol or opening their own wholesalers or starting their <laughs> We've own. had a huge debate about that this week. Solo, I don't know, it would be the equivalent of Hard Mountain Dew. Solo is our lemon um, that was sort of pitched towards adults, you know, as the solo man was the hero of it. But of course, it was a sweet, fizzy soft drink and it was um, consumed by kids. Um, they've recently launched a hard version mimicking hard mountain dew so we're again just six months 12 months behind what's going on in the u.s and getting getting to watch what happened there um with, with interest is there as much of a bit of outrage as we're tending to get here uh, well again not yet um because it's only just been released um but we have a very very strong anti-alcohol lobby in in australia that no doubt will be raising but of course the the tiktok videos and the social media um distilling of the brand is only starting to come out and of course it's young tiktokers or um youth focused media talking about remember your your your, your flavor from your childhood it's now got alcohol in it you know and uh, it's very much pointed the, the people that are picking up what the producers are putting down are very much in the young not drinking for flavor um category which is a very visible demographic for anti-alcohol so we're, we're very early days yet but i can see that it is going and, and that's my argument you know when i discuss in in our um internal forums um pointing out that you know when you defend everything, you defend nothing. And if you feel compelled to defend all alcohol from the anti-alcohol people, it makes it harder to defend beer um, when you're also defending things like that. But yeah, it, 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 it's a debate in its early stages here, discussion in its early stages here. Um, what, tell, tell us about what you've seen. What has been the debate in the US? Um, you know, what can we expect here, Zoe? It's been a mix of they're the folks that are angry or upset about that similar thing of who is this really targeting? Where can these things be sold? What can they be marketed next to or even look like? Um, the the main brands that have been brought up as examples of that were when Sunny D came out with their vodka seltzer and then with the hard Mountain Dew. Or is this different enough to for people to even know it's an alcoholic beverage? Are people going to pick it up thinking it's just another flavor of the traditional product? And then the other end of it is people inside the industry, and we've heard this a lot from the National Beer Wholesalers Association, are concerned that those larger non-alcoholic beverage companies might be leveraging their existing relationships with retailers and things to promote these products because they follow different rules than alcohol does. They're allowed to do things like pay for product placement with their non-alcoholic beverages. You can't do that with beer. But if you're doing that with a something like a, a giant soda brand that brings in a lot of money for a retailer, are they going to give you some benefits with your other products? Maybe. So there, those tend to be the two main arguments and concerns that people have. I don't know if I missed anything, Justin. Slotting fees is definitely the thing that I was thinking of there at the end. Also, I'm I'm a little cynical that in thinking that there's some pushback on the hard Mountain Dew and the Lipton hard iced tea 
mainly because PepsiCo created this wholesaler of its own, and these products aren't going through Boston Beer wholesalers, and they're not going through FIFCO USA wholesalers. They're going to the Pepsi wholesaler that was created out of the blue. So I feel like that there's some pushback on, on that for that reason, too, because some of their members missed out on those items. But that's a cynical Interesting. point. <laughs> I think it's a fair assessment. If there's one thing that we learn to be, it's cynical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> particularly with the number of media releases we get a, a week that we have to sift through. Cynicism yeah. helps. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, there is so much more I could talk about, but I'm looking at the time and knowing that you'd probably want to uh, punch out the end of your day, um, put your card in the punch clock. So, Justin and Zoe, thank you so much uh, for joining us for this conversation. I, I would actually love to do it, maybe even uh, do it every six months so we can see what we can be expecting down under um, yeah. you know, <laughs> as, as, as the uh, world, as the seasons change. Let's uh, do it. And you should yeah. come on our show. Yeah. Would love to. Um, absolutely. Uh, it'd be great. Again, it's, it's always odd hearing a podcast all the time and then suddenly appearing on it yourself. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I welcome the chance. Open invitation. So well, let's do it. Thank you guys. Thank you. That was Justin Kendall and Zoe Licata. And I thank them very much for making time to chat. From here, you know the drill. We can only make this happen and bring you these sorts of conversations because of the people who support the podcast, whether advertisers or listeners. If you work in the industry and benefit from what you learn through this podcast, help us to continue to inform and educate and rock the boat where needed by sponsoring the show or advertising on the site. You can email sam at bruiseuse.com.au to find out more. If you're a listener, you can sling us a few dollars yourself or just get on and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcasting service. It's been a while since that's happened. We do have a lot of reviews, but I'm sure some of you have yet to review us. Hopefully it's five stars, but even one star gives us some good feedback. We'll be back this Friday with Brews News Week, talking about our own insight and analysis of the news here over the last seven days. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and we'll join you then.